Fasten your seatbelts, because we're in for a bumpy ride this morning. It was 1975. The Great, the Great Lakes freighter called the SS Edmund Fitzgerald launched in, uh, sank during a storm on November 10th, and the entire crew was lost. When launched in June 1958, she was the largest ship of the North American Great Lakes, and she remains the largest to have sunk there. The captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald was known for piping music on the ship's intercom day and night that would be heard on the shores of Lake Superior. He was dubbed the DJ Captain, and as such, he endeared his freighter boat to the watchers all along his route. Leaving the port in Superior, Wisconsin on the afternoon of November 9th, the Edmund Fitzgerald embarked on her ill-fated voyage carrying a full cargo of ore pellets. The next day, they were caught in a severe storm on Lake Superior, with near-hurricane force winds and waves up to 35 feet high. Shortly after 7.10 p.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald suddenly sank in Canadian waters about 17 nautical miles from Whitefish Bay, which lay between Michigan and Ontario, a distance the Edmund Fitzgerald could have covered in less than an hour in better weather. No distress calls were ever sent before they sank, before all on board perished, and none of the 29 bodies were ever recovered, and to this day, the cause of the disaster remains a mystery. Although books have been written, studies done, and expeditions made to try and answer that question, what happened? It later became the song, the subject of a song by Gordon Lightfoot after he read an article about the tragedy. In his ballad, Lightfoot attempts to recreate what must have happened that terrifying night. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchigumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore 26,000 pounds more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty, that good ship and true was bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. The ship was the pride of the American side coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most, with a crew and good captain well-seasoned. Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded, loaded for Cleveland. And later that night, when the ship's bell rang, could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? The wind in the wires made that tattletale sound, and a wave broke over the railing. And every man knew, as the captain did too, "'twas the witch of November come stealing." The dawn came late and breakfast had to wait when the gales of November came slashing. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain in the face of a hurricane wind. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., the main hatchway caved in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in. He had water coming in and the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? The searchers all say they'd have made Whitefish Bay if they'd put 15 more miles behind her. They might have split up and they might have capsized. They might have broke deep and took water. And all that remains is the faces and names of the wives and the sons and the daughters. Pretty terrifying, huh? This helps us imagine what it would have been like to live through that horrible experience. Today, we have our own study, story of a storm and a shipwreck with a snake bite shown in, thrown in, and then Rome at last. 
Can you believe we've reached the end of Acts? Next week, we'll review where we've been this year. But today, let's follow Paul as he finally reaches Rome. Obedience brings blessing. No matter the portion of scripture we study, this principle rings true. And Proverbs 12.12 says, The root of the righteous bears fruit. And the study Bible note for this verse states, The simple life of obedience produces blessing. Paul's life was one of obedience, but as we've seen, it was anything but simple. With churches being planted, heresy battled against, beatings, stoning, and left for dead, and constant attempts at character assassination, we have watched Paul's faithfulness to the gospel. We have seen his intense desire to go to Rome. We saw this at the very beginning of our study last year in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then in verse 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you, you also who are in Rome. And then in verse 23, he says, Since I have longed for many years to come to you. Though this was continually the desire of Paul's heart, he remained faithful to the task set before him, preaching the gospel. Obedience brings blessing. One of the ways God may choose to bless our obedience is granting our desires when they are in accordance with his will. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Psalm 145.19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him, He also hears their cry and saves them. After years of faithful ministry, God is seeing fit to fulfill Paul's desire to go to Rome, but perhaps not quite in the way he expected. When it became apparent he would be going to Rome, it was still a two-year wait in the jail of Caesarea, and then a terrifying two-week-long storm at sea, 14 terror-filled days blown by violent hurricane-force winds across the Mediterranean, And after his fourth shipwreck, landing on an island with absolutely no idea where they were, the island of Malta. Today we are going to follow this narrative and see God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. We'll see his promise fulfilled when not one person on Paul's ship would be lost. All 276 were saved. All 276 experienced the mercy and grace of God. Also, God will fulfill his promise made to Paul that he would go to Rome in Acts 9.15, 19.21, and 23.11. Although we already know the ending of the story, there is much to learn about God's faithfulness, his purpose and plan, and his grace and mercy. And as we've seen all along in our study of Acts, nothing can thwart God's plan for the spread of the gospel. So let's get started in Acts 27 with a storm and a shipwreck. It's probably safe to say that none of us here have ever experienced a shipwreck, and today, Lord willing, will be the closest that any of us come to one. After my study and research of storms, I almost felt like I had experienced one, and I must confess, as I researched in preparation, I actually was feeling seasick, especially after reading about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Many commentators doubt the veracity of Luke's narrative because there are so many details. But as we make our way through, we will see why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include all these details. A British yachtsman, James Smith, is quoted in the MacArthur Commentary in Acts concerning this passage. He says, Scripture is accurate 
and God is true to his word. We only see God mentioned once, but his sovereign hand and protection and guidance is clearly seen. Acts 27 starts out with a myriad of details, and the first one that jumps out at us is seven words into the chapter. We. We all know Luke is the author of Acts, and this tells us he is back with his beloved friend Paul. We haven't seen him since chapter 21, verse 18, when he accompanied Paul, who was giving the elders a report of his third missionary journey. So we can be sure that in addition to the account of this journey to Rome being inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke also lived it and had firsthand experience to the terror of that trip. In addition to Luke, we also find another travel companion of Paul's, Aristarchus, whom we first met in chapter 19, verse 29, when he was captured during the riot in Ephesus. Uh, Colossians 4.10, in Colossians 4.10, he is referred to as a fellow prisoner. As we read through this passage, we ask the question, why, when Paul was a prisoner, was he able to bring his friend Luke with him? It is understood from that time that in order for Luke to be able to join Paul, a prisoner, on the journey, he had to be a slave. Paul must have really wanted Luke with him, and we see the heart of a very kind friend who was willing to go on this journey with Paul. This was no pleasure cruise, even without the tumultuous storm. Prisoners and their slaves were given no creature comforts and very little food. In fact, the ships were not meant for passengers, so any prisoners and their slaves or escorts were stuffed in wherever they would fit. What we see here is a true friend in Luke. If a friend asked you to join them on a journey like this, would you? And aren't we thankful that Luke did? He had a front row seat to the storm and the hand of God at work. In verse 3, we begin to see God's purpose in providing so much detail to this story. The group has made the first stop on their journey in Sidon, and we see Julius treating Paul with consideration by allowing him to receive care from his friends, presumably other Jewish believers who had fled to Sidon after the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 6. It is possible that Luke was not well because the Greek translation of the word care refers to some kind of medical attention. So Paul was allowed to receive the care he needed in order to continue on his trip to Rome. We ask the question, why would Julius show Paul such kindness when he's a prisoner? The answer includes the kindness and sovereignty of God. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If anything were to happen to Paul, Julius knew he would pay with his life. And But like Festus in Jerusalem in the last two years, he had come to trust, admire, and care for Paul. He knew Paul would do nothing to compromise the centurion and get in the way of arriving in, in Rome. Luke includes the details about where the ship sailed to let us know that the ship was quite small, and these ships typically stayed close to the shoreline when the winds were difficult to manage. In verse 6, the group boards a different, larger ship in Myra. This ship was carrying a full load of grain. As we see later, there was a reference to throwing wheat overboard. We can also surmise that this ship was much larger as we are told that there were 276 crew members and prisoners on board. With great difficulty, the ship makes its way finally to Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. And this is where we see significant decisions that affect the rest of the trip. 
and allow God's glory to shine through dire circumstances to come. By the time we reach verse 9, it's very late in the sailing season. Commentators assess that it was most likely late October to early November, because the Day of Atonement, which is celebrated in late September or early October, was already past. In the world of sailing, there are seasons. There is a season when sailing is enjoyable and without peril for the most part, a season when it's more dangerous, and finally a season when it's strictly forbidden because of the danger. It was totally forbidden to sail from November 11th to the end of March. But the time from September 14 to November 11 was the most dangerous season when it wasn't wise to sail on the open Mediterranean. And this is exactly where we find this band of sailors considering the chances of making their trip. Paul, an experienced traveler, having survived three shipwrecks, which we see in 2 Corinthians 11, 25 to 26, was not keen on experiencing a fourth. He was not a sailor, and he was a prisoner. So as he gave his input about the wisdom of the trip, it made sense that the centurion didn't listen to him, but rather looked to the pilot and captain of the ship to advise his decision to move ahead in spite of the danger. Rather than wisdom, the decision was based on comfort, where the men would rather spend winter. Fairhavens was not a nice place to be for the winter months, especially as the captain looked at having to bear the cost and responsibility of the care and feeding of the crew and prisoners. The decision was made to press on toward Rome, even if it meant falling short, but reaching a more desirable port than Fairhavens. But God is at work. He has allowed Paul to weigh in, and those in leadership see his wisdom and concern on display. Verse 13 tells of soft winds, which was all the pilot and captain needed to be assured that setting off was the way to go. Remember the word at the beginning of this chapter that caught our attention and brought us such joy? Here in verse 14, just one verse after hearing about those soft winds, we see another key word, but this time it brings dread, but... The ship is now headed into a wind called the Euroquilo, which is a violent hurricane-force wind. Eura is Greek for east wind. Aquilo is Latin for north wind. And it's what they call in the sailing world a nor'easter. Throughout this narrative, we see the entire ship population jumping in to help control the ship. The sailors feared running aground in the shallows of Sirtis, known as the ship's graveyard, for those who attempted a trip during this dangerous time. Each day brought more dire measures to survive the storm. Cargo overboard, ships tackle overboard, and navigation was impossible without the moon and stars visible to guide them. We note in verse 20 that all hope of our being saved was slowly abandoned. This is coming from the hand of Luke, who, unlike us, had no idea of the outcome. He includes the respective hour, which would be thought to include the crew of seasoned sailors who had been through this before. To borrow a line from the ballad of the Edmund Fitzgerald, they were a crew and good captain well-seasoned. Even their hope was slipping away. We see the sheer terror of the crew and the rest of the passengers. There had to have been intense sickness from the huge waves that would have caused the boat to stand almost vertical, only to smash down over and over. 
No one could stand or walk, and all anticipated a horrible death by drowning. I apologize if you're prone to seasickness like I am. I am thankful no friend of mine has ever asked me to take this kind of journey with them. I don't think I could be the faithful friend that Luke is. It was in the midst of this, in verse 21, that Paul stands up. There is no, this is no longer a group of professional sailors, crew, and prisoners. These are now desperate men fearing for their lives. And all eyes turn to Paul, the prisoner with no say in the situation a few verses before. He is now a credible voice, and his heart to encourage these desperate men shines brightly as he shares a divine revelation and introduces these men to God. And being human, he can't help indulging in a little bit of I told you so. And we start in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and, I wor- and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Here, once again, we see the character of God in full color. As in chapter 18 and chapter 23, Paul has a vision from the Lord where he receives comfort, assurance, and his confidence is restored by a God who loves his own and who sets his heart on those he loves. God had already told Paul that he would go to Rome, and we've already seen the amazing ways that God's plan for protecting him and getting him safely there have been worked out. But we see the compassion of a loving father who understands there just might be a little tinge of doubt in Paul. Things are not looking good. We go back to the book of Joshua to see the same care and concern of a loving, compassionate father when his people face dire circumstances. In chapter 1, we see God commissioning Joshua to conquer and divide the land he has promised to his chosen people. From verses 6 to 9, we see God tell Joshua three times, be strong and courageous. Later, in verse 18, and then in chapter 10, verse 25, he repeats the command, be strong and courageous. Israel would need a massive amount of courage to trust God in the face of great odds. These people were not going to just pack up and walk away and give them their land. They would have to fight for it. He understood they would need continual reminders to be courageous. The same God that was on their side is with Paul right now. These men have now met the God to whom Paul belongs and worships. And because they are with him, they will all benefit from God's protection of Paul. We see God working through Paul and giving him credibility in the eyes of this group as he understands the scope of the situation and how to proceed. Paul has gone from prisoner to leader of the ship. All look to him for guidance and direction. While all others had lost hope of survival, Paul alone stood calm, wise, and in control because he had absolute trust in in the promise of God to save all those on the ship. Luke provides us with so much detail about the rest of the trip and what was done to the ship as they continued on their journey. 
It is so interesting and quite an education in seamanship. By verse 30, we see some of the crew attempting to escape in the lifeboat, and Paul goes to the centurion to bid them to make bid him to make them stop. Paul would not compromise God's instructions that all the men had to stay on the boat. God's promise was for all to be saved, and the sailors skilled would be needed the next day to get everyone safely to shore. The centurion listens to Paul, showing how trusted he's become. Paul then encourages the ship's men to take courage and eat, and they would need their strength for the work ahead. He again encourages them with a familiar Jewish proverb that we can also find in First and Second Samuel, in First Kings, and the Gospel of Luke. Not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Paul gives thanks to God for the food, and they eat. And verse 36 tells us, all were encouraged and took food, encouraged by and following the direction of a prisoner. The one who knows and follows God is now trusted by all. A happy ending to Acts 27? Oh no, the story's not over yet. We haven't even gotten to the shipwreck. There is still calamity, sneaky underhandedness, and more of the hand of God to be had before this story ends. The sailors and crew did all they could to secure as smooth a landing as possible, but this was not to be. There was one more disaster for this ill-fated journey as the ship struck the reef and began to be hopelessly battered to pieces by thunderous waves. It was time to abandon ship. Some of the sailors came up with a scheme to kill the prisoners so none could escape. They had not learned that the God that Paul knew and worshipped would keep his word. But Julius the centurion had been around Paul long enough to know that God's word could be trusted, and he understood the need to protect Paul and get him safely to Rome. So the plan is called off, and just as God promised, all 276 were brought to land. His power and providence had triumphed, and his glory was on display. Now we can take a breath as we reach the end of Acts 27. And what is to come? A snake bite, and finally Rome. Chapter 28 opens, and you can almost hear Luke's exhale of relief as he reported reported that they'd been brought safely through. Exhausted, hungry, sopping wet, and chilled to the bone. And to top it off, in verse 2, it starts to rain. Could it get any more miserable? We watch God guide and direct this group aboard the ship all around the Mediterranean for two weeks. And somehow, they landed on this tiny island of Malta. None knew exactly where they were, as Luke tells us they had to be informed by the natives as to what the island was called. The sailors from the wrecked ship had most likely been to Malta before, but never to this part or bay, so they didn't recognize it. Today, this part of Malta is called St. Paul's Bay. And it's informative that Luke tells us that the natives showed unusual kindness to the group, as it was typical in the ancient world that shipwrecked victims um, would be killed, especially prisoners. But remember, God has other plans for Paul, and nothing will get in the way of that. This word kindness in the original Greek means an unconditional love for humanity. The same word is only used one other time in the New Testament, in Titus 3.4, when Paul refers to the kindness of the Lord in taking on human form, and then in verse 5, according to his mercy, he saved us. And we see the truth of Romans 2 being lived out in these people, God's general revelation 
the divine law that is put on every man's heart to know instinctively what is right and what is wrong and to value justice, honesty, compassion, and goodness towards others and to be guilty when this law is violated. And also according to Romans 2, which takes us back to last year's study, we see for this reason all men are without excuse. We see Paul serving the group once again as he immediately begins to gather sticks to stoke the fire so all can gain warmth from it. And then comes a big whoops. One of the sticks was actually a poisonous snake who did not appreciate the sudden intense heat from the fire. Not only do I get horribly sick at the slightest wave, but I detest snakes in the strongest possible way. Again, I could not have been that faithful friend that Luke is. Now, many commentators, again, wonder if this part of the story could be true. How could Luke tell if this was a poisonous snake? And as well today, there are no poisonous snakes on this part of the island of Malta. In that day, however, physicians, which Luke was one, are noted authority on poisonous snakes by sight. Also, we see the immediate reaction of the islanders when the snake latched onto Paul's hand in verse 4. This is the most convincing proof. They expected Paul to die from the snake bite. Since there was a Roman centurion on hand, the people could assume that Paul was a serious criminal. They had strong beliefs in the mythology of the Greek gods, of the ocean, of the weather, etc., and therefore assumed that even though he survived the storm, surely he would face judgment from the snake. Again, we see the work of the law written on their hearts from Romans 2.15 when they decide that now justice will be served, justice that Paul must deserve. But verse 6 tells us that after a long time, nothing unusual happened to him. Can you imagine what it was like for Paul and Luke to sit there in the rain, having just survived a shipwreck, and having everyone, including the 276 from the ship, all watching in verse 6 says, a long time to see him die. Just about a month ago, I read a story about the same thing. The San Diego Zoo is home to the African bush viper, and one of its handlers was bit by this snake. There is no antivenom for these snake bites. Instead, the zoo worker was taken to the hospital to watch and wait. National Geographic reports that death will occur within three days of a bite from one of these snakes. Kidney failure, severe inflammation, hemorrhaging, and tissue damage, along with fevers and internal bleeding, begin to take place before certain death occurs. To close the loop on that story, the zoo worker did survive and eventually went home to fully recover. And I just wonder if he's still going to work with snakes. (laughs) Is this what the people were waiting for to happen to Paul after his snake bite? After a while, when nothing happened, Paul went from being a murderer in verse 4 to a god in verse 6. We saw this once before in Acts 14.11, when Paul healed the cripple and the people cried out, saying, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Once more, we see the sovereign hand of God, even in the face of false religions. Had Paul died in the storm or from the snake bite, God's gospel message would be nullified, And as well, those who believed in Greek mythology would believe that justice had been served. Let's move on. And while we don't see God mentioned in this narrative, we clearly see his hand. Publius, we can assume, was the leading man on the island, or the Roman governor. He invites Paul and all 276 of his shipmates to his home for three days. 
Only a Roman leader or politician would have a home large enough for all these visitors at once. And look at that. Remember in chapter 13 when Paul was housed in Herod's praetorium? Remember Crystal's description of this house? The best on the block. Once again, we see the hand of God allowing Paul, a prisoner, to be housed in the governor's mansion. The best on the island. During that time, Paul heals Publius's father, who was suffering from a recurring fever and dysentery. When Paul Twist preached on this passage on a Sunday night back in October, my husband, a physician, leaned over and said, Malta fever. So naturally, after church that evening, I quizzed him about this. Malta fever was common in that day. It was from a bacteria called Brucella melitensis which comes from goat's milk and was the result of poor sanitation. It was common in this part of the world in ancient times. The Lord gives Paul the opportunity to show his grace to this gentleman. First, Paul prays, showing his dependence on God, and then he laid his hands on him, affirming that it was God working through him, and then the man is healed. And after that, it's not surprising that we read for the next three months, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him to be cured. As we saw throughout the book of Acts, the purpose of miracles was to authenticate Paul as God's messenger. During this time, and because of Julius's lenient treatment and trust of Paul, he would have had many opportunities to preach. The miracles of healing gave Paul credibility, even as a prisoner. And it seems that the people of Malta listened to what he had to say. According to tradition, the church on Malta dates back to this time with Publius as its first pastor. Verse 10 indicates that by the time the crew was to set off once again, that the people of Malta cared deeply for Paul and Luke as all the needs of all the sailors were met. Could it be that many of these were receptive to the preaching of the gospel and believed in the God whom Paul knew and worshipped? And so we see God's hand clearly directing Paul's ship through the tumultuous storm to land exactly where he wanted them to, on this tiny island that is nine miles wide and 17 miles long in the middle of the Mediterranean. Verse 11 tells us by the time it was that it was time to set sail once again. This time, the destination was Rome. But let's stop here for a moment. Even after three months' time, how many of us would be ready to get back on that ship after the harrowing experience of Acts 27? Paul had not written Philippians 4, 6 through 8 yet. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Paul and Luke lived those principles at the moment they got back on that ship. The memories of those terrifying two weeks had to fill their minds. It would be interesting to know if Paul was possibly thinking of this when he wrote those verses. And what an encouragement to us. Paul lived a life that would make anyone anxious and fearful. But he learned to trust in the God of all power to carry him through. And he gave us a plan for when we are anxious. Pray with thanksgiving. 
get our focus off ourselves and onto God who will guard our hearts with his army of peace and contentment. Keep our minds off our problems and on what we know is true, honorable, just, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And let's remember that Paul wrote those words in the midst of another anxious time when he was awaiting his trial. The timing of Paul's writing of Philippians really stood out to me last summer as a friend of mine and I read through the Bible in 90 days. It helped that we were in a lockdown. The schedule was arranged in chronological order, and so as we read Acts 28, we headed over to Philippians. In the middle of all this turmoil in his life, he writes what is referred to as the epistle of joy. Today, we find ourselves a week away from finishing our study in Acts and heading into our summer break. Do you have a plan this this summer of how you're going to stay in God's word? What will you read and what will you study? Talk to your leader or talk to a friend and see what their plan is. And whatever you do, have a plan to stay in God's word. Let's get back to the end of our story. It's time to set sail for Rome, finally. Again, Luke adds such interesting details. He tells us they boarded an Alexandrian ship which had the twin brothers as its figurehead. Now, since I myself am a twin, I was quite curious about who these twin brothers were and why are they on the figurehead of the ship. They were Castor and Pollux, sons of Zeus in Greek mythology. They were viewed as the gods that protected the sailors, which again shows us that the people of that time and place were very much influenced by the gods of Greek mythology. Luke then gives an itinerary of stops along the way until they reach the port of Petoli, a city of 100,000 where Paul and Luke were able to find other believers. We've looked at two key words that jumped out at us in this passage, and at the end of verse 14, we see four more. We came to Rome. It's almost anticlimactic, an understatement, the way Luke writes it. I think I would have added an exclamation point, a hooray or a woohoo or something. Other believers heard of their arrival and walked from as far as 43 miles away to meet them. We lose the deeper meaning of certain words when translated from the Greek into English. And I'm once again so thankful for those who study the original languages and teach these treasures in commentaries. Recently, this was illustrated to me when I read an excellent book called Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. Each week, her husband Charles would ask her to comb commentaries on a passage he was getting ready to preach. She said the following about this task. Never was an occupation more delightful, instructive, and spiritually helpful. My heart has often burned within me as the meaning of some passage of God's word has been opened up and the hidden stores of wisdom and knowledge have been revealed. Or when the matter and fatness of a precious promise or doctrine has been spread like a dainty banquet before my admiring eyes. This is truly what happens when we dig into commentaries, and I saw it here once again. At the end of verse 15, Paul says, He saw them. I learned that in the original Greek, it's the word for being deeply moved by their visible demonstration of love for him. And in light of that, I love the end of this verse. He thanked God and took courage. Paul wastes no time, as was his usual pattern, and within three days was speaking with the leading men of the Jews. 
Although it was the Jewish people who have treated him so badly, abused and persecuted him, he bore them no animosity and went straight to them once he was in Rome. He defends his innocence, and so as to not alienate the Jews, he explains why he is a prisoner. He reviews his charges and the results of his trial. It was, Paul preach- it was Paul's preaching of Jesus and the resurrected king that antagonized the Jewish authorities. This was the glorious hope of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, and the resurrection. Paul was on trial for his belief in Israel's hope. And this was the recurring theme of his defenses, as we saw in Acts 23 and 26. And this takes us back to Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Verse 21 and 22, we see the Jewish leaders responding to Paul very diplomatically. And in light of Paul's exoneration from two Roman governors and knowing that Paul was to go before Caesar, these Jewish leaders did not want to stir the pot and bring attention to themselves with the Romans. And a little history will give us some context. Ten years earlier, the Jewish leaders had been temporarily expelled for Rome for clashing with the Christians. For this reason, they were not anxious for more trouble with the Roman authorities. Remember Priscilla and Aquila from chapter 18? They were part of this expulsion from Rome, which sent them to Corinth, which is where they met up with Paul. And so it was agreed that the Jewish leaders would come again to meet with Paul. He took the opportunity preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God, which refers to God's rule in the sphere of salvation and the future millennial rule of Christ. He, as usual, used both the law of Moses and the prophets. And Paul did this from morning till night. Let's stop for a moment and consider the soldiers who were chained to Paul 24-7. These soldiers heard the gospel all day long, whether they wanted to or not. Do you think God had a purpose for that? Something we can look into when we get to heaven. Did these soldiers who were chained to Paul for all that time come to believe in the gospel and believe as Christ is their king? Verse 24 reminds us there is always a remnant of believers, as Luke indicates that some were being persuaded by the things said by Paul. But the following statement, we see that others would not believe, which continued the Jewish nation's sad history of rejecting God's messengers. Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26 shows how far back this history goes when God judges Israel for being stiff-necked in the face of the constant stream of messengers that God sent to preach truth. We saw Israel's ultimate rejection when they killed his son. If you memorized our passage this year from Acts 2, you were reminded of this each time you review in verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, crucified by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. Verse 25 indicates they disagreed with one another, again, showing us that the gospel divides. We saw this over and over throughout our study of Acts. Paul closes his time with the Jewish leaders with a solemn warning to those who refuse to repent and believe. In Matthew 3, 14 and 15, we saw Christ use the same passage as a rebuke to Israel's hard-hearted rejection of the gospel. Their judgment, they would become unable to believe. The gospel was going to the Gentiles who would listen and believe. Was this rejection final? We see Paul's answer in Romans 11, 1 and 2. 
that God will not cast away his people. Paul is a testimony that there will always be Jews who believe. Israel's rejection will not cancel God's promises to bless her believing remnant. There will be a day when Israel will have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul spent the next two years in jail carrying out an extensive evangelistic campaign. He also wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He was doing everything the Jews hated him for and wanted him brought to trial for. Proverbs 28.20 says, A faithful man will abound in blessings. In closing, let's follow the thread of God's blessing in just these two chapters. Paul experienced the blessing of God's kindness when Julius sh- uh, allowed him to go ashore in Sidon and receive the medical care he needed. And then the Maltese people showed him that unusual kindness after the shipwreck. The blessing of God's provision was seen when Publius provided Paul a place to stay on Malta, as did the Christians at Potoli. We see the blessing of encouragement during the terrifying ordeal at sea when God sent Paul an angel to hearten him. Paul was also greatly encouraged by the Roman Christians who came from so far to greet him. Acts 27 and 28 is a narrative about the blessing of God's deliverance. As we've seen Paul delivered from harm, a storm, a shipwreck, and a snake bite. God blessed Paul with great influence. Paul greatly affected those who survived the storm and the shipwreck. And through his ministry, a a church was most likely begun on Malta and possibly at Syracuse, one of their stops on their final journey to Rome. And he was only there for three days. And finally, God fulfills the desire of Paul's heart. He had yearned for many years to see Rome, and now that desire had been granted. Obedience brings blessing. We have seen God's provision and providence in these two chapters, his blessing and faithfulness. The same faithfulness upholds his people today. What are you facing? What joys, what sorrows, what challenges? If you belong to Christ, you rest in that same perfect care that Paul did. We leave Paul under house arrest, but allowed to have visitors, writing some of his most impactful letters, which we benefit so much from today. The next time you are anxious and running to Philippians 4, be encouraged by the command to be anxious for nothing, but in everything give thanks, reminded of what to keep your mind on. Remember where Paul was when he wrote these truths. He was in Rome, jailed and chained to a soldier 24-7, and awaiting a trial, having no idea when it would come about or what the outcome would be. We don't get to hear the rest of the story here in Acts. However, we do get to see Paul faithfully obedient to his calling, no matter his circumstances. Luke doesn't give us the rest of the story of Paul's life. How long was he in jail? What happened when he went before Caesar? Was he put to death? If we go back to the theme verse in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, we see that Acts was not a narrative or a story about the life of Paul. By the time we reach the end of the book, we see God's plan for the gospel has indeed been accomplished. The gospel has gone from Judea to all, from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Nothing, not even a Roman jail, can thwart God's plan for the spread of his gospel. 
His plan has been fulfilled. And today, his purpose is still being worked out in the lives of all believers. Our life and ministry may or may not be going according to our ideal plan, but we can be confident that it is going according to God's plan. Nothing can get in the way of God's purpose and plan. God has been faithful in these amazing closing chapters of Acts. We've seen that same faithfulness throughout this whole book, haven't we? God's perfect care for his servants, for Peter, for Paul, and even for Stephen in giving him a vision of heaven as his life here on earth was ending. In whatever we are facing today, we can rest in that same faithfulness if we belong to Christ. We can live a life of obedience that brings glory to God. Does your life reflect thanks to God for his abundant blessings? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your faithfulness and the blessing of salvation. Go with us now as we head to our groups, and may the time be profitable and bring glory and honor to your name. And may your truth work in our hearts to sanctify and grow us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.